This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Welcome to this second season of My Life in Books. I'm your host, Red Sale, and each fortnight I invite you to join me in conversation with one of today's top authors. Whether they write fiction or non-fiction, rom-coms or Roman histories, we'll be checking out their latest chapters, riffling through their back catalogue, and discovering which books inspired them to pick up the pen. Over the next few months, my guests will include international bestseller Deborah Mogar, discussing the book that became the best exotic Marigold Hotel, and the pitfalls of adapting novels for the big screen. We'll meet espionage expert and military historian Ben McIntyre, who'll be unlocking some of the secrets of Colditz and introducing us to an assortment of spies. Rebecca Stott will take us back to the Dark Ages following the collapse of the Roman Empire, as well as revealing how her upbringing in a religious cult has informed her writing. And rising Canadian star of speculative fiction, Premi Mohammed, will be reflecting on the limits of science and the background radiation of cosmic horror. And of course, if you missed any of the episodes in the first series of My Life in Books, they're all available for download from your favourite podcast provider. There you'll find top crime writer Mick Finlay discussing his Victorian gumshoe Arrowwood, Booker shortlisted author Maggie Shipstead on pioneering female aviators, and my fellow AMI presenters Dave, Ramia and Kelly in conversation with me about how we access the books that we love. But right now, it's time to turn to my guest this week. Louise Hare's atmospheric debut novel, This Lovely City, was set in bombed-out post-war London and placed a young couple from the Windrush generation at the heart of a tender love story wrapped up in a whodunit. The novel received rave reviews, and Louise's follow-up has been eagerly anticipated. And... Miss Aldridge Regrets is no disappointment. Set in 1936 aboard the ocean liner Queen Mary, it's a brilliant murder mystery, combining music and glamour with a probing exploration of race, class and pre-World War II politics. Before I introduce Louise, here's a clip of Georgina Campbell narrating Miss Aldridge Regrets. Strike up the band. Chapter 1. Wednesday, 2nd of September. Queen Mary. I stared down into the churning water, wondering how long it would take for an object to strike the surface if it fell from such a height. I had found a spot at the quieter end of the promenade deck, several stories above the fierce, white-capped waves. Opening my hand, I let the bottle fall, holding my breath as it began to spin, almost hitting the side of the boat. Small and brown, the bottle looked ordinary, but its contents were lethal, and I welcomed its demise, destined to sink until it came to rest on the floor of the English Channel. 
I felt a weight lift and wipe tears from my cheeks as my body sagged forward over the railing, my legs shaking. For days I had carried death with me, and finally I was free of it. The ship sailed on towards France. Cherbourg was our only port of call before striking west for New York. She brushed the waves aside as gracefully as the women of Hampstead danced their breaststroke across Kenwood Ladies' Pond. Smooth. Effortless. Even so, I hoped that anyone seeing me in such a state would assume an attack of seasickness, that they'd glance out on the relative calm of the sea and take pity on me, wondering how I'd survive once we hit choppier waters. Only I knew that my nausea had nothing to do with the sea. I had left London that morning, catching the boat train down to Southampton and holding my breath at each station stop until I was sure that the police weren't coming aboard, hot on my trail. Boarding the ship had been finally managed chaos, crowds of people everywhere as families roamed the dock, waiting to wave off their relatives, the Queen looming over us, regal and magnificent. I had felt anonymous in the hubbub, trying to look as though I knew what I was doing, accidentally overtipping the porter who carried my solitary trunk. It was never too early to get used to American customs, Maggie had told me as she waved me off in the taxi from Hampstead. It'll be like learning a role for a play, she'd said. I was good at that. It was getting the roles in the first place that I'd always struggled with up to now. Louise Hare, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you for having me. We've just met Lena Aldridge on board the Queen Mary, but she's got a backstory in London. Can you tell us what she's running away from? Yeah, so when the book sort of opens, the sort of backstory that's just happened to her is that she is sort of grieving the loss of her father, who died about eight months before, and she's sort of struggling to cope. She's a jazz singer, but she had all these great ambitions that she was going to be, you know, a West End star. Um, and none of that's happened. She's ended up basically having to sing in this quite sleazy bar in Soho uh, with a boss that she hates, who also just happens to be married to her best friend, and just wondering where it's all gone wrong. And then to cap it off, then someone gets murdered. So uh, things go really wrong. And she's just been offered this sort of chance of a lifetime, which sounds too good to be true. Uh, and the deal is she'll get a starring role on Broadway and a first-class ticket on the Queen Mary, which sounds wonderful. And then when this murder happens in Soho, she sort of thinks, well, what have I got to lose? I, you know, it seems like a good time to, to get out of here and, and try something new. And she does sense that it is an offer too good to be true, but there's a link with her father who she adored and that is what clinches it for her. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, obviously her father doesn't actually appear in the book, but he's such a big presence in her life. You know, he was sort of a single parent. And so, yeah, she sort of takes the chance because she thinks this was his friend in New York that he used to know. So maybe, it, maybe it's OK. And Lena is mixed race. She can pass as white. She's very light-skinned. But this 
also means that she has something to cover up when she gets on board the Queen Mary because she is amongst the cabin class or first class passengers. Yeah, um, I suppose it was just, for me, it was a really good way of exploring identity because I am mixed race myself, although I would never pass as white. And it's just it was just quite interesting for me to sort of explore what her life must have been like, whether, you know, how do you choose how to present yourself each day? Um, and when I was first sort of coming up with the idea of the novel was also when there was all this stuff in the in the British press about Meghan Markle and people were saying it was racist and people were saying it can't be racist because I could hardly tell that she's black. And actually what I wanted to sort of discuss as well in the book a little bit is the fact that racism isn't always about how dark your skin is. I mean, obviously there's colorism and things like that, but it's more along the lines of, for example, like the eugenics movement. And, you know, it's more about that idea of being tainted and not being desirable. So that, that was what I sort of wanted to explore a little bit. And as you say, it being set in 1936, a couple of years before the start of the Second World War, eugenics is a, a very hot topic, not just in Germany, but also in Britain and America. And there is a difference between the views of race, between the British and the American passengers on board the Queen Mary. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, I think it's something that still exists. The way I sort of wanted to look at it is in America, obviously there was segregation and, you know, actual laws as to what way you could, could and couldn't go. So it was very explicit. But the thing, those same things were happening in the UK. It was just that they weren't written down. So one of the things that Lena sort of refers to at one point in the book, she goes to the Savoy Hotel. And the reason that I chose that as a location was because I think it was a couple of years before my book is set, Paul Robeson, he was a huge star, American black actor, and he spent a lot of time in the UK and performed at the Savoy Theatre for quite a long stint, but was invited to go to the, the Savoy Grill one night for dinner and was turned away. I'm told that he couldn't come in because he would upset some of the American guests. So... You know, we didn't technically have segregation in the UK, but it, it very much did exist, sort of just very quietly in a very British way. You know, people would sort of make different excuses for it. And, and so, you, you know, it's not, it's not about racism. It's just about, some, you know, something else, about upsetting people. We don't want to upset anybody. Um, so I sort of just wanted to explore it in that way. And there is also the constant reminder of segregation because there are parts of the Queen Mary where second and third class passengers cannot go. And and that's a, a wonderful reminder that it's not just segregation by race, it's segregation by class. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It was sort of the perfect location to, to show you that because essentially if you were in first class, then you were welcome to go and sort of slim it in the sort of the lower quarters if you wanted to but if you were in third or second you were stuck in that you were stuck in that level you couldn't go any higher and also that used to happen in places like Soho where Lena sort of come from you would find members of the aristocracy going to these sort of dodgy nightclubs and sort of sneaking out the back if they got raided but you know if you were of that area if you were working class or you were black you couldn't sort of sneak into their private members club so it is about sort of exploring that inequality and that freedom that that wealth and status gives you. 
Now, the British upper classes on board ship are pretty repellent, but the real villains of the piece are the horrendous Abernathy family, <laughs> who, who are an American family who Lena ends up spending rather more time with than she might otherwise have wanted. You must have had great fun writing them. I really did. Um, I mean, they are incredibly obnoxious. I mean, I, I just, I sort of took my inspiration from, I read a lot of F. Scott Fitzgerald when I was sort of starting my research and going back to Agatha Christie and those sort of Poirot novels and those, yeah, really horrific upper class people that, that she used to write about. And yeah, it was just so much fun seeing what they were going to say. Um, those dinner table conversations were really fun to write. And another huge character within the book is the Queen Mary herself, a real ocean liner from the 1930s and really the byword for stylish and modern travel at that time. I can just sense how much research you did. And obviously there are loads of photos and I believe even an onboard newspaper that you were able to mine for information for the book yes so um because i live in london i'm very fairly close to the british library so i had the advantage that once i'd realized that they had copies um not from her exact crossing because i did look up the dates of her crossing to put lena on but i think it was like one the month before and yeah you can't take it away but you can sort of have a look look at it there um and go through and sort of compare it was quite interesting comparing when the ship was sailing towards New York it's a lot thinner because there aren't as many adverts but when it was sailing from New York to the UK there were just so many more adverts for like Savile Row tailors and different West End shows and and things so I guess that's maybe showing the two cultures a little bit as well that the British people would not be interested in the adverts but the Americans yes let's sell everything to them. Now, as you say, this is rather an homage to those wonderful books from the golden age of crime, such as Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. There's a real sort of death on the Nile or murder on the Orient Express type of feel about it. And I believe it's the first in the series. Without giving any spoilers, where are we going to pick up with Lena in book two? So book two, um, which I'm just editing at the moment, is set in New York. Where the first book finishes, it literally picks up on the same day and then sort of goes through the next few weeks of Lena's <laughs> fairly traumatic life. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to say too much else, but it's sort of about her coming to terms with what, what happens in the first book, but also following that thread of her father because he was from from New York so she sort of thinks maybe I should take the opportunity to investigate what happened there like why he left and um and she unturns a few secrets along the way now I know that this book was originally a short story and a prototype of Lena even makes an appearance in your first novel, This Lovely City, which we will come on and discuss later in the show. She clearly was a character who just got into your head and and wouldn't go. So the, the reason that she sort of pops up, although it's not really Lena, but someone 
sort of a, a similar figure in the first book is that my character Evie in this lovely city looks at this woman who's singing on stage and sort of um, my sort of extrapolation of that, it's not actually written down in the book, was that she sort of looked at her and thought, gosh, she must have everything together. You know, she's so glamorous. You know, she must have it all. And obviously, once you start to explore and get to know Lena, you realise that <laughs> she's just a mouse um, of a person. So <laughs> I sort of just was interested in, I suppose, it, you know, it comes down to sort of celebrity as well, isn't it? That we sort of hold certain people you know, we put them on a pedestal and we think that we should emulate their lives. But of course, what we see, what we read about in glossy magazines or what, you know, what we hear about celebrities is sort of what they want us to know about them rather than necessarily what they're, what's happening in their lives. Um, although I think obviously in recent years, that's become a little bit trickier with all the social media and things. Now, as I said, we're going to come on and discuss this lovely city in the next section of the show. But like many of your fans, I read the books in publication order. And this lovely city is set in London in the late 40s and 1950 and explores how the Windrush generation were received in that capital city. I wondered if you felt drawn to go back to 1936 so that you could better understand some of the more negative reactions that the Windrush generation received in 1948, 49, 50, and, and just unpack that in your own head by looking at the, the generation before Windrush. Yeah, I think one of the things that I actually really wanted to uh, originally write about so before I wrote this lovely city I actually wanted to write about black characters living in London before Windrush because it felt to me at the time that everybody in the UK certainly knew what Windrush was which was sort of the start of migration from the Caribbean to I guess the mother country um, because you know these were British colonies at the time Later, I realised that like a lot of people didn't actually know what Wimbush was anyway. Um, but what I was mostly keen to, to do was ex- to show that there were black people in the UK before 1948. Um, and so I think with Misogyny's Regret, it was sort of, yeah, going back and exploring a little bit earlier. I mean, I'd love to write something. I've been writing something on and off for the last few years, sort of set in the 1760s, which isn't quite right yet. I haven't quite figured that one out. But there have, you know, at times there have been quite a large black population in the UK, and then it's sort of dwindled and then regrown, and you know, it's been over hundreds, even thousands of years. So, yeah, it was nice to um, it was nice to revisit Soho actually, because I do have some Soho scenes in this lovely city, and I found them really fun to write and to research. So, I mean, mostly it was just to revisit that sort of, I guess, vibe and think about the music and. I think about the community because I think Soho as a community has always been a bit of a mix of all different people, French, Italian, the Maltese. There were all these different sort of communities all sort of living around Soho um, in the sort of early, early 20th century. So, yeah, it's just quite fun to sort of explore that a bit. 
Well, now that we have thoroughly whetted everybody's appetite, we will come on to talk about your first novel, This Lovely City, after the break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This month, I'm in conversation with Louise Hare. We've already discussed her second novel, Miss Aldridge Regrets, but now it's time for her dazzling debut, This Lovely City. Now, as we said before the break, Louise, the book is set in the immediate aftermath of the Empire Windrush, the ship that came over from the West Indies full of men and a few women answering the government's call to come and help rebuild Britain after the Second World War. And as you've already said, there's a real temptation, even nowadays in Britain, for people to assume that all black people in the country arrived on or after the Empire Windrush. But that is to ignore a small but very significant number of people who had been living in Britain for decades and actually, in some case, centuries. Yeah, the knowledge of what the Windrush was, that was something that I sort of grew up with. Later I realised, because I thought I'd learn about that history at school, um, but later I realised it's actually must have been my parents that, that have sort of brought me up with this knowledge, because I actually didn't want to write about this period. I wanted to write about earlier periods and sort of break that knowledge that people think they have, that, you know, Britain was very white and that black people are, you know, recent arrivals into this country. As I was finishing writing the book, we had the big Wimrush scandal, which was when there were issues with the Home Office and people with legitimate British citizenship were suddenly threatened with deportation back to countries that they've never really been to uh, or had left when they were children. So that was suddenly in all the papers. And I'd written this book about these people who sort of were at the start of that, that movement. So it was very weird to sort of suddenly be reading these real life stories that, you know, I could imagine the children, I guess, of some of my characters, things that they might have had to go through. And one of your two protagonists is Laurie Matthews, who has come from Jamaica, almost at the insistence of a friend of his dead brother's. His brother died serving in the RAF in the Second World War. And he turns up full of hope that he is going to be able to forge a new life and and answer the government's call and be able to help rebuild what he views as the mother country. But like so many, he is overqualified for the menial jobs that he can get. And that is really used as an excuse to turn him away from the work that he could do. Yeah, so what I wanted to explore, I guess, with Laurie is people of his generation, they would go to school in Jamaica and other Caribbean islands. And, you know, it was, it was a British curriculum. So you would be taught how wonderful Britain was, how wonderful the empire was. Basically, what a great, what a great country. So, you know, when 
his brother's friend Aston turns up, it seems like this is an opportunity because they were selling tickets on the Windrush for you know a fraction of what they would normally cost. So it was people were still using their savings, but it was sort suddenly affordable where before it wouldn't have been. Um, and so he thinks, you know, what is there actually for me in Jamaica? And he's a musician as well, so he thinks, you know, maybe there's a chance to sort of pursue that a little bit. And there were a lot of musicians on the ship. That's something that sort of turned up in the research. And also when his brother was um, living in the UK fighting in the war, you know, he'd send back the postcards and obviously they portray a very, you know, a beautiful, you know, blue skies, great monuments. And so he thought he was going to arrive into this brilliantly impressive country. Um, but obviously London, straight after the war, you know, basically a bomb site and then people didn't want to give him a job so he he does get lucky I mean he's one of the lucky ones in that he actually does get a good job as a postman which fits around his music so he can get up early do his shifts and then play music in the evenings but yeah I sort of wanted to sort of explore that idea of what it must be like to have all these high expectations and to almost have been sold a dream and as you say, the bombed out backdrop of London acts as, well, it acts as a metaphor for the violence and racism that Laurie and his friends experience. But it also is a constant reminder of the desolation of the population of London, so many sons have been lost, so many neighbours have been killed and every gap in a terraced street where a bomb fell is a reminder of loss and grief. But it's also something that is contagious. That desolation begins to infect Laurie and his friends as they are shunned by the local population, maybe because they are a reminder of what has been lost. Yeah. The way that I sort of structured the book, so most of Laurie's friends, they all play in a band together, apart from Aston, who just sort of lurks around um, drinking. <laughs> yeah, they're sort of struggling. And at the point that the book sort of opens, it feels like it's like a turning point in a good way. It feels like things are sort of getting better, like Laurie's getting to the point where he's doing this sort of route on his post round every day. People are starting to sort of greet him. Um, and then obviously it all goes horribly wrong because at the end of the first chapter, he actually discovers a body in the pond on, on Clapham Common uh, as he's sort of coming back home on his bike. Uh, and also it's a baby and, it's a, and it's, the baby is black. So that immediately throws that whole community under suspicion and that's really when things really get quite bad and quite violent in a few of the scenes. Yes, and just by being a black man in London, he is a suspect and he and his friends are all looked at with suspicion. And there's a wonderful line that comes from one of your characters in the book that explains, if not excuses, racism, that everybody needs someone to look down on. And especially at times of 
worry and tragedy and trauma. And Laurie and his friends are put under a microscope because of this discovery. I mean, one of the reasons I put that line in is because I, you know, it's, it's something we still see today. So, especially in terms of when we're talking about, you know, who we call migrants and who we call expats, for example. So, you know, if you're a white British person, you you and then you decide to move to Spain, you're an expat. You're not described as a, a migrant. And I'm, I was just sort of interested in, I guess, making people think about that a little bit, um, but also. We've seen recently with what's happened in Ukraine that in the midst of all that evacuation and, and all that terrible stuff that's happening, there have been issues with the black population in Ukraine. They've had people been stopped at the border. And you think things are so bad, but you still have time to be a little bit racist. And that's what it kind of comes down to. There's always there's always a line and it's a, and there's always someone beneath that line. And no matter how bad things are, there's always someone that you can sort of looked down on as being not as good as you. So that's what I kind of wanted to reflect with that that line. Yes, there is a real sense of twas ever thus in this book. I was particularly struck by how despite the heralding of the passengers on the Windrush arriving in London and being welcome in all the newspapers, the capital is utterly unprepared and doesn't actually have anywhere for them to sleep apart from the World War II deep bomb shelter underneath Clapham Common. And you think, well, things haven't changed that much really in <laughs> 70, 80 years, have they? No, I mean, honestly, there's nothing that I wrote in that book that I didn't think applied today. So... It was really interesting when the when the book first was published, which was March 2020, and I read a few early reviews online, just sort of reader reviews, uh, and there were lots of people saying, oh, you know, so sad to read about this, but luckily it's in the past. And I was like, oh, no, that's not what I was trying to get across at all. But then the next month they had sort of George Floyd happening and suddenly the tone of the review started to change and people were sort of realising, actually, no, this still happens. So I thought that was just a really interesting change in people's attitudes towards the book as well. Now, it would be totally remiss of me not to discuss the other protagonist in the book, Evie, who is the girl next door to Laurie. And she, like Lena in Miss Aldridge Regrets, is mixed race. And she has been born and brought up in London. And by the very arrival of the men and women on the Windrush, she is actually put under greater scrutiny than she has had before. Yeah, I think when you're the only one, I suppose talking about my own experiences, so the town that I grew up in, there were probably a handful of, of black people. I was always the only one in my class at school. There were maybe three or four of us in my high school, which had over a thousand students. So I was just sort of using my experiences to sort of sort of show that, you know, when you're when there's just one person, they're not a threat. And so it's not that she hadn't sort of experienced racism before, but then all of a sudden there's a hundred black people where before there was one. And then people are like, oh, what's happening? Like, what, 
what's changing what and people don't like it so it was just sort of exploring that aspect of things now both your books are terrific page turners and they keep us guessing right until the very very last page and the audiobooks particularly have brought them wonderfully to life and kept me up far too late at night and got me into trouble <laughs> with my wife. Um, I take it you are a huge fan of the mystery books of the mid-20th century and that you read them as a youngster yourself. Yeah. At school, I would always be in the library and... I think basically what I I never knew which books to pick up, so I literally just started at A, and then I got to Agatha Christie. It's obviously quite early on in the alphabet, um, and I was quite lucky. My school library had a massive a massive shelf of her books, so I just sort of worked my way through them. And then I would say in later years I've become a big Patricia Highsmith fan as well because I like. I like her characters. I like what she does with characters. I would say Agatha Christie writes great plots, but not always compelling characters, if you discount sort of Poirot and Miss Marple. Whereas Patricia Highsmith, I mean, Tom Ripley is the most brilliant sort of murderer because you want him to get away with it. And he's not even a nice guy. I just, there's just something, partly because everyone around him is even worse. So you don't sort of mind when he murders people. Um, but I'm really interested in characters that aren't perfect and why you might root for them. Well, like all great thriller writers, you're dropping clues for what's going to happen at the end of proceedings. So rather than you giving us the books of your life in full, I think that we should take another break and then let's come on and discuss the audiobook versions of Miss Aldridge Regrets and This Lovely City. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This episode, I'm talking to Louise Hare, author of This Lovely City and Miss Aldridge Regrets. Now, we mentioned the audiobook versions of your two novels before the break. This Lovely City is brilliantly brought to life by two quite young narrators, and they have quite a juggling job to do because they have to present the voices both of their authentic selves, but also the voices they present to their employers. And those voices are markedly different, particularly in Laurie Matthews's case, where we hear his wonderful Jamaican lilt when he's dealing with his bandmates and the effort he has to take to slow himself down and make himself be understood when he's talking to his rather racist boss and the even more racist police detective sergeant yeah i mean the stage of the audiobooks i love is sort of listening to the perspective actors and sort of deciding do they fit my you know if i think about what laurie sounds like does this guy sound like him um and what was interesting was they actually sent me 
uh, so Theo Solomon, who does the voice for the Laurie chapters, they sent me a clip. And because normally you just hear a, a random, it's it's nothing to do with your book. It's like an advert or it's, you know, just to hear the voice. And he was reading actually a, a page of the book and he was so good that I didn't even realise it was my book. <laughs> it sounded like, so, like, this book sounds good. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> That's my book. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, he did a brilliant job. And what I, what I really loved about the process with this lovely city is because the music we had composed specifically for the audio book, which I just really loved. Like um, I got to go to the sort of a local music college in East London and they'd sort of written this, this music and played it for me and they were like, do you think it's okay? I was like, it's, it's amazing. So it just really brought the book to life, I think. You know, Laurie is, is a, essentially a sort of jazz musician. And it was just that added extra to go, to go with the narrators. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the music acts as bridges between each chapter and you get brief snatches of it in the audiobook. And whilst I was turning the pages to find out the solution to the mystery of the baby's death, I was quite bereft at the end of the book. And then we have this wonderful six or seven minute jazz track. And, and it was a real treat, which obviously one would not get with a paperback. Exactly. It was, I just felt really privileged to to sort of have have that. I mean, I don't know how common it is that you get to have your own piece of music composed for your for your book. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was just blown away. Now, music is also pretty central to Miss Aldridge Regrets. It is the backdrop to a lot of the action that happens on the Queen Mary. And for that, you composed a playlist to go along with the audiobook version as well. Yeah, so there is a Spotify playlist. I name-check quite a few songs throughout the novel, which I hope will sort of convey the change in tone of you know what, sort of what's happening at each sort of section of the novel. And actually, that was a great way to... When I didn't want to write, it was a great way to procrastinate, was just to sort of look at lots of, <laughs> lots of songs. And they all, had, they all had to have been released before September 1936 and to see what sort of actually worked. Just as part of the title, I wasn't looking at the lyrics because I can't afford to have lyrics in my books anyway because they cost <laughs> a fortune. But yeah, it was really good fun. So I, and I hope, you know, if people like you don't listen to much jazz or just want to sort of experience the novel on an ongoing basis <laughs> and listen to the playlist. Well, both novels provide a real kind of sensory delight. There's plenty of food in both of them. You obviously relish the descriptions of, well, the opulence of the Queen Mary and actually the the worn grubbiness of London in this lovely city but you're never just concentrating on the visual. You you write multi-sensory works. When you immerse yourself in writing, do you have music in the background and do you have objects to to use as touchstones whilst you're writing? Yeah, so, so I listened to a lot of jazz as I was writing both books. Sometimes I'll just put on a, a jazz radio station or I'll put on a playlist 
I'm quite lucky that I can sort of block out the lyrics. I know a lot of writers can't listen to anything with lyrics in, but unless it's something new, and all the stuff I was listening to was from the 1930s and 40s and 50s, so it was all sort of all sort of standards more than anything. So yeah, just to get me in, I guess just to, to almost imagine myself back in in that period, and then I actually read a lot of fiction from the period. Um, before I start writing again, to listen to the dialogue and to think about how people spoke and how they write about the areas that I'm writing about, how they describe things. So that was something I, that I do a lot. But also, I think because I did a master's in creative writing, that you do, you always get these reminders that you have to sort of bring everything to life and you have to think about what, how things smell and how things taste. Because realistically, as a reader, to really immerse yourself in, in the novel, you have to be able to imagine all of that. You need to be able to mm. hear the traffic or taste the food. Now, somebody else who I suspect has been listening to quite a lot of voices from the 1930s is Georgina Campbell, who narrates Miss Aldridge Regrets. She gets that wonderful cut-glass-received pronunciation when Lena is passing herself off as worthy of her first-class ticket. She's a well-known actress in the UK. What was it about her voice that made her Lena Aldridge for you? I think, I mean, partly it was because as an actor, I, I love what she does anyway. So I, I thought it'd be nice because when we, for the first book, we went for, I guess, actors that were sort of lesser known because I sort of felt that was important because they were, because Lori and Eva are like really young. Um, so I wanted the you know, the narrators to have that sort of sound of, of youth and naivety. Whereas Lena's a bit more sort of streetwise, she's a little bit older. And yeah, I think as before, they, you get sent sort of these little snippets of earlier work. Um, and I had, there were three options. And there's, yeah, it was, it was just a feeling. When, when I, I listened to all three a number of times and I just kept coming back to, to hers and thinking, yeah, I think she's my Lena. <laughs> I think she's the one. <laughs> And you've got her locked in for the rest of the series, have you? Well, I need to check. <laughs> I do need to check that, actually. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, you can tell her that your uh, your audiobook fans definitely want her back, please. I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time for another break, but afterwards I hope you'll come back and share some of the books that have inspired you as an author with the books of your life. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. I'm in conversation with Louise Hare. Louise, it's now time to quiz you about the books of your life. So, was there a book that, as a youngster, made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes. So, I mean, I, I loved reading from a really a young age. But 
I guess the book that sort of made me think, oh, actually, I could do this. I, I could be a writer. People like me are writers. There's a book called The Friends by Rosa Guy. And on the cover are these two little girls and they're black. And that was the first time that, that I'd seen that. And so I think my mum bought it for me. And to be honest, I think at the time that I read it, I was probably a little bit young because it does sort of tackle some difficult subjects. But I was just suddenly fascinated that, you know, I'd gone from reading lots of Enid Blyton, so Famous Five, Secret Seven, all those kind of, you know, very white middle class. So not what not how I particularly grew up or how my friends grew up. And suddenly it was like, oh, you can read a story about people who are not exactly like you because it's set in the US and I was growing up in a town in the UK, but it made me realise there was more available than sandwiches and ginger beer and going on adventures to an island. For example, it could just be that you lived in a normal house and things would happen to you that were still, that were interesting and that felt, I guess, real um, as well. So yeah, so I think that was the book that first made me think, oh, actually, potentially, this is something I could do. Wonderful. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Uh, I would say that the book I probably reread the most in the last 10 years is Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. It sounds odd for me to say this. The reason that I love it so much is because halfway through, there's such an amazing twist. The first time I read it, I literally just dropped the book in shock. But when I reread it, I'm rereading to get to that moment because I, I'm just so impressed by how it's done. So even though I know it's coming, it still always shocks me a little bit. <laughs> I don't know what I'm expecting. Like, the book's going to change one time that I pick it up. But it's just a great... I mean, I love reading historical fiction. Obviously, I, I write it myself. But I love Sarah Waters' stuff. And she just really recreates that sort of dirty Victorian London but then that sort of countryside aspect that's in the book as well and she doesn't really shy away from I guess the hardships and showing you know even the people who are sort of the bad guys essentially apart from one of them who is just a bad guy um you know it's about survival rather than just being a bad person yeah they're all grifting to survive aren't they Mm. yeah there's no safety net there's no welfare system so you know if you don't have any money you you'll die essentially um so then why wouldn't you become a thief or worse and that of course is what a fingersmith is it is a a, a pickpocket yeah yeah but she, i mean she covers many different crimes in the book <laughs> from <laughs> the baby farming to yeah giving people out of money and yeah it's just a just a fabulous book And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, Actually, so I'm going to cheat a bit because this is another reread that came out a few years ago. But I really want to write a creepy ghost story type novel at some point in the future. And one of the books that just terrifies me is Slade House by David Mitchell, which, and it's a funny book because it's sort of a almost like a spin-off of The Bone Clocks, which is potentially better known. I love that book as well. But, yeah, Slade House, it just terrifies me. 
so I, I reread it again to sort of figure out how why why is it so creepy and it still is it still is and it, but it feels I suppose what's terrifying about it for me is that it feels like normal life but just everything's very slightly skewed and it's just that I guess it's that proximity to normal as if what happens in that book could actually happen in real life I think that's why it's so creepy it's not over the top it's just very normal and then bad things happen and people don't come back out of the house yeah yeah it's it's, it's really I'm talking about it I'm like oh gosh it's so creepy <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but it's great <laughs> Well, Louise Hare, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with the listeners and also for giving us greater insight into your own two wonderful novels. I'll look forward to inviting you back onto the show in years to come with more stories about Miss Aldridge and, well, who knows what other parts of historical fiction. But for the time being... It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. And, well, thank you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Thanks again to my guest, Louise Hare, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already busy working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favourite podcast provider.